Well, there are times in life when the people we mistreat become the very people that we need help from. Uh, so maybe there was a time when uh, you were disrespectful to your parents, only to later need them to give you a ride. I'm sure that's never happened. Uh, maybe you uh, recklessly cut someone off on the road, only to arrive at work and discover that, well, they're your new boss. Or maybe you lost your temper with someone at the ball game, only to learn the following day that they're your dentist. You know, most of us have, have been in that kind of awkward situation, haven't we? Well, in our passage today, Joseph's brothers need help. And the only person that can help them is the very person that they've mistreated. And uh, we've got six chapters to get through this morning. Too many chapters to read during our time together, and we obviously don't have enough time to focus on every detail. Uh, so my goal really this morning is to highlight the big ideas of this narrative. And in order to do that, we're going to do a uh, quick-ish walk through the passage. And then once we've got some grasp of the story, and then I'm going to highlight uh, three things uh, that we can take from it. Uh, three things that apply to our lives. So let me encourage you to keep your Bible open in front of you, and that will really help you to follow along. So over the last few weeks, we've been following the story of Joseph, and Joseph was his father's favorite, and he received a prophetic dream where he ruled over his family. However, his brothers jealous and bitter, sold Joseph into slavery. And since then, Joseph has been on a bit of a roller coaster, hasn't he? But in God's providence, he's ended up as the ruler of the land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And at this point in the story, there's a severe famine over the entire earth. And this famine was actually predicted by God and then revealed to Joseph ahead of time. And so Joseph has spent the last seven years preparing for this famine, storing up food so that the people of Egypt don't die. And so as a result, Egypt is really the only place with a lot of food. And so that's the context as we begin chapter 42, verse 1. So let me read verse 1 and 2 there. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt... He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. See, Jacob knows that unless they go to Egypt, they're going to die. I mean, that is how severe this famine is. Certain death is on the cards. So Jacob sends 10 of his 11 sons to Egypt. However, he doesn't allow his youngest and now favorite son, Benjamin, to go. He's already lost Joseph, and he can't bear the thought of losing Benjamin too. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So this is the first time since being sold into slavery that Joseph has come face to face with his brothers. And as the readers, we're, we're on the edge of our seats because we're like, well, what's gonna, what's gonna happen next? In verse eight there, we learn that Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so Joseph starts to interrogate them. He even accuses them of being spies there in verse nine. 
Now, we'd probably expect Joseph to hold a grudge, wouldn't we? And get even with his brothers. You know, to take a line from Kill Bill, we'd expect Joseph to whip out a sword and, and say to them, you and I have unfinished business. But that's not what Joseph does. In fact, over the next few chapters, chapters Joseph is going to put them through a series of tests. Because as we're going to see, Joseph actually wants good for his brothers. He desires reconciliation. However, before Joseph reveals himself, he, he wants to see if his brothers have actually changed. And so he begins the first test there. He puts them in custody for three days. Then in verse 18, we read, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then there was the reaction of the brothers in verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Maybe for the first time in their lives, the brothers feel a conviction for their sin. Maybe over 20 years later, they confess their guilt. They recognize that they've sinned against Joseph. And they conclude that God is about to hold them to account. What we see here really is the first sign of repentance. And notice how Joseph responds in verse 24. He overhears their confession and instead of gloating, he weeps. He sheds tears of hope. But to see if their repentance is genuine, he continues the test. So he detains Simeon and he sends the brothers back to Canaan. And before they leave, he gives them plenty of provisions. And without them knowing, he puts, he puts their money back in their sacks in verse 25. We're not told what his motives were. He might be being generous, but this also might be part of the test. And so the brothers travel home, and on the way, they find their money in their sacks. And in verse 28, they freak out because it looks like the thieves. We read that their hearts fail them, and they start shaking with fear, and they say to one another, what is this? That God has done. Once again, they recognize the rule of God over their lives and they think that this is a sign of God's punishment. How can they go back to Egypt now? They'll be treated as criminals. It'll look like they've took the grain and then took the money back on the sly and now they're heading back. In verse 29, they arrive home and they tell their father, Jacob, everything that happened. And Jacob is distraught. In verse 36, he says, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. And so Jacob refuses to let his sons take Benjamin back to Egypt, which, you know, you can tell that Benjamin is his new favorite now because Simeon's there, but he doesn't care as much about Simeon, but he wants to keep Benjamin back. Now, if you look at chapter 43, some time has passed, and we're told again that the famine is still severe in the land and the family have now run out of grain again. 
And so once again, they're faced with certain starvation. And Jacob has no other option now but to send the boys back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin. So in verse 16, they arrive and Joseph now invites them to dinner. However, they think it's a trap. You know, they've seen their fair share of gangster movies. You know, they know what happens when a wise guy invites you to a private dinner. And so they think that they're going to get whacked. And so what they do is they, they pull one of the stewards aside in verse 19. And they're like, listen, buddy, we had, we had no idea about that money. Like, we, we've, look, we've brought it all back. This was just a complete misunderstanding. But then in verse 20, the steward gives them a message from Joseph. He says, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in, the, in your sacks for you. I received your money. Phew, crisis averted. They seem to have passed the first test. Simeon is brought out to them. And then in verse 26, Joseph enters the scene. And twice we're told there that all 11 brothers bow down to him. Again, if we've been following along in the book of Genesis, we'll know that this is the fulfillment of Joseph's first dream. But underneath the Egyptian act, Joseph's love for his family takes over at this point. He, he asks how Jacob is doing in verse 27. When he sees Benjamin in verse 29, his emotions get the better of him and he, he makes an excuse to leave and then he just cries like a baby in his room. Then after composing himself, Joseph returns and everyone sits down for dinner. And that's when the second test begins. So we look down at verse 33 there. And notice how Benjamin, the youngest, is given a seat of honor. He's then given five times as much food as his siblings. Do you see what Joseph is doing here? He's testing the brothers for jealousy. He wants to see if they treat Benjamin the same way that they treated him 20 years ago. So the next day in chapter 44, he sends them off back home. And once again, Joseph sneaks something into the luggage. This time he puts his silver cup into Benjamin's sack. Again, what's Joseph up to? We'll look at verse three. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away on the, with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. So the brothers, they plead their innocence. They're so certain that there's been a mistake that they offer up the life of anyone found guilty. But then in verse 12, as the steward is searching through the baggage, he finds the cup in Benjamin's sack. I mean, you can imagine the scene going in slow motion at this point, can't you? As the, the steward raises the silver cup and the, the brothers just drop to their knees and tear their cloaks and they're like, no, not Benjamin, you know? And it's, it's a tragic moment. The one guy they didn't want this to be is the one that they find is guilty. In verse 14, they return to the city and Judah says to Joseph in verse 16 there, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? 
God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in, whom the hand, in whose hand the cup has been found. Judah makes a confession here, but just look what he says to, to Joseph. He says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, Judah, he's not talking about the silver cup here. After all, the brothers are innocent in this situation, and they know they are. Judah here is talking about a different guilt. You know, he's talking about that guilt that's been gnawing away at them ever since they sold Joseph into slavery. You know, Judah knows they might not be guilty of this particular sin. But he knows that they deserve what's happening to them. Again, he sees God's hand in all of this. But Joseph said in verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man who's ha in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, here's the big test right here. Joseph offers the, offers the brothers their freedom. And as a bonus, they get to get rid of Benjamin. No more daddy's boy. How will the brothers respond? Have they really changed? This is the moment. Well, in verse 18, Judah rises to the occasion. He delivers the, the longest single speech in the book of Genesis. And he begins by recounting everything that's happened so far. And then in verse 30, he tries to convince Joseph to spare Benjamin. He says there in verse 30, Now therefore... As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy, Benjamin, is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shield. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servants remain instead of the boy, as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Four times Judah says that his father will die if he loses Benjamin. He is so concerned with his father that he does something amazing. Judah offers to take Benjamin's place. Again, we've been following the life of Judah and we can see what a difference there's been in Judah's life, can't we? And now Joseph sees it too. Because with this, Joseph has heard enough. He now knows that his brothers have changed. They're not the men they used to be. And for the third time, Joseph bursts into tears. Look at chapter 45, verse three. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? He's saying basically, is, is my father still well? Is he, is he healthy? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You know, their, their jaws hit the floor. They're dumbfounded, confused, terrified. It's like they've seen a ghost. However, Joseph wants to reassure them. In, and in verses 4 to 15, we see one of the most moving scenes of reconciliation in the entire Bible. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. 
And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I'll provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and, your eyes of, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. You know, verse five sounds like a contradiction there, doesn't it? You sold me here, God sent me. You sold me, God sent me. And it sounds like a contradiction, yet here we see one of the classic statements of God's providence. On the one hand, we have human actions, evil human actions. Yet on the other hand, we have the perfect will of God. And Joseph confronts his brothers with the mystery of God's providence. They sold him into slavery. They're fully responsible for their wicked actions, but God used their wicked actions for good. You sold me here, but God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph repeats the idea in verse seven. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And then look how strongly Joseph puts it in verse eight. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. You know, ultimately, Joseph is not in Egypt because of his brothers. He's in Egypt because God wanted to save people from certain death. God is so sovereign, so in control, that he can even use evil human deeds for salvation. Mind-blowing. I mean, in fact, there's, there's so much more we could say about that and, and, and so much application there. However, we're going to think more about this amazing truth in a couple of weeks as we finish up our series in Genesis. So I, I want to, as much as it pains me, I want... I want to leave plenty of meat on the bone, you know, and, and you're welcome, Mike. You can talk about that in a couple of weeks. But we're going to leave that for two weeks. So come back in two weeks and we'll, we'll think more about that, that wonderful idea. But in verse 16, Pharaoh hears about all this. And he tells Joseph to, to bring his entire family to Egypt. In verse 25, the brothers head back to Canaan to get the rest of the family. And the first thing they do is they tell Jacob the good news. Joseph is alive, not only that, but he is, he's ruling over the land of Egypt. Of course, Jacob doesn't believe them, but then he sees the Egyptian wagons outside, which were basically 
like ancient U-Haul trucks. And so his heart skips a beat. He starts, is this really true? I mean, imagine finding out that your beloved son, who, who you thought was dead, is actually alive. And not only alive, but thriving. At the beginning of chapter 46, God tells Jacob to go down to Egypt. Verse 3 there, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I'll also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Uh, There's actually a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. So in those days, people only believed in local deities. The gods were only present and powerful in their particular regions. However, Israel's God is different. He is sovereign over the whole world. And so his presence will go with his people into Egypt and his power will bring them back again to the promised land. Now, we don't have much time to look at chapters 46 or 47 in any detail, but let me summarize them quickly. So in chapter 46, Jacob and his entire family head to Egypt. We get a list of some of the people that came. Once they arrive, Jacob and Joseph are finally reunited. Then in chapter 47, Jacob and his family settle in the land of Goshen. They're actually put in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. And at the end of the chapter, the famine reaches its worst point. So even the citizens of Egypt run out of food. And so they come to Joseph in verse 15, saying, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Again, in verse 19, they say, why should we die before your eyes? Again, the text has shown us the seriousness of this situation. Certain death awaited people. Their only hope was in Joseph, the man who God sent to preserve the lives of many. So that's Genesis 42 to 47. I can see some of you, your head spinning. Uh, but hopefully that made a little bit of sense. But what are we, what are we to take from all this? You know, how does, how does all of that apply to our lives today? Well, with the rest of our time, I want to give us three big ideas from the passage. And the first one is this. We need saving from certain death. We need saving from certain death. Uh, the context of our passage is a severe global flood, uh, famine, sorry. And the, unless people can get food, they're literally going to starve to death. That's why Jacob tells his sons in chapter 42, go down and buy grain for us in Egypt, that we may live and not die. It's why Judah tells Jacob to let them return to Egypt of Benjamin, that we, that we may live and not die both we and you and also our little ones in chapter 43. It's why the Egyptians repeatedly say to Joseph, give us food, why should we die before your eyes? The reality of impending death, that's the big problem in this passage. Now, you and I might not be in the middle of a severe famine, but the truth is we need saving from certain death too. Nobody is getting out of this life alive. And now this seems obvious. You don't need me to tell you that one day you're going to die. You already know that. But then again, we often live like that's not true, don't we? So in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, psychologist Ernest Becker makes an interesting observation. 
He argues that death is such a horrible reality that in order to cope, we live in denial. We, we refuse to think about it. We, we distract ourselves. We, we work and plan and play as if we're immortal. This is especially true in our day and age and place, isn't it? You know, because for many of us, death is, is foreign to us. We and the people around us live longer and better than anyone in human history. So as, as medicine and technology have advanced, our lives have become increasingly comfortable and safe. But life hasn't always been like this. So for example, at the end of the 18th century, four out of five people died before the age of 70. Four out of five. The average life expectancy was in the late 30s. Now, the average life expectancy is nearly 80 years old. That's a 50-year difference. For our ancestors, death was everywhere. It happened in the walls of every home. It didn't just happen to your grandparents, but it happened to your parents or your new bride or your little brother or your newborn child. And it happened all the time. So you had to think about death. Even just think about the way church buildings have changed. You know, previously, churches had graveyards. And so every Sunday as you arrived at church, you'd walk past a bunch of graves. You'd probably see the name of a loved one on one of the tombstones. And you'd be reminded of your own mortality. Times have changed. I mean, when you looked at the designs outside, you didn't see any tombstones out there, did you? Although the human death rate is still 100%, we're less, less exposed to death. Death tends to be something that happens in a hospital wing or in a nursing home, out of, out of the sight of normal life. Of course, there are times when the reality of death hits closer to home. When someone we know passes away or we get, some, we get a health scare or if we see something tragic on the news or we find ourselves in a global pandemic... But even then, we, 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 kind of, we, we kind of live in denial. So we distract ourselves with entertainment and work and pleasure. Or we even try to overcome death through exercise or dieting or medicine. But none of these things actually solves our problem. Denying death doesn't change the reality. Staying fit, eating healthy, getting vaccinated can only delay the inevitable. You know, I know a guy who purposely avoids being alone with his thoughts. So he always has the TV on or the radio or, or something else to distract him. He hates the silence. And so I, I asked him one day, I said, why? Why don't you like being alone with your thoughts? Why do you hate the silence so much? And he told me that he doesn't like to think about death. And that's where his mind goes when he's alone with his thoughts. And death scares him because he doesn't know what lies beyond the grave. The reality of death is, is overwhelmingly terrifying for him. And so in order to cope, he does what Ernest Becker says most of us do. He lives in denial. And maybe you find yourself doing the same thing. Let me ask you, when was the last time you thought about the fact that you're going to die? Now, I'm not trying to be morbid here, but, but here's why this is important. So if, if you're not a Christian, 
then unless you take the reality of your own death seriously, you'll miss out on the good news the Bible has for you. But if you are a Christian, you need to hear this too because Christians can be just as prone to live in denial when it comes to their own death. We need to take the reality of our own death seriously too because otherwise the good news of the Bible will become like a life insurance policy, something we really think about and really we hope we'll never need. And we'll focus most of our time and energy in this world. We'll put all of our hopes in living the good life, whatever that life looks like in our own imagination. But a passage like this reminds us, whether it's from a famine or a virus or anything else, we need saving from certain death. And that brings us to the second idea of this passage. We need forgiveness for our sin. We need forgiveness for our sin. So think about Joseph's brothers. They face certain death. And the only one that can help them is the very person they've sinned against. And that creates the big tension in this story because in order to be saved, they need to be forgiven. They need to be reconciled to the one that can save them. And the same is true for you and me, isn't it? We too face certain death and the only one that can help us is the very person that we've sinned against. And that's God. And that, that's what makes death so terrible because like Joseph's brothers, we're guilty of sin and death brings us face to face with the one who holds our life in his hands. The one who is a mighty king and a holy judge. And so we don't only need saving from death, we need forgiveness for our sin. I wonder if any of you used to watch the TV show ER. Uh, there was once an episode called Atonement, which had a particularly powerful scene uh, there's, a, there's a man who's lying in his hospital bed and he's dying of cancer. And next to him is a chaplain. And the man tells her, God tried to stop me from killing an innocent man, but I ignored the sign. How can I even hope for forgiveness? So you have this guy who's experiencing the reality of his sin and the certainty of his impending death. And he tells the chaplain that he's terrified of what happens next. What, what will happen to me when, he die, when I die? He then asks, is atonement even possible? What does God want from me? You know, it's every pastor's dream conversation. But this chaplain is the worst. <laughs> she has no answers for him. She has no good news. She's stumped. She keeps replying to his questions with more questions. And all of a sudden, the man gets really frustrated and he raises his voice and he says, now you listen to me. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God and a real hell. I need answers. And all your questions and your uncertainty are only making things worse. I need someone who will look me in the eye and tell me how to find forgiveness because I am running out of time. It's an incredibly powerful scene. And the reason it's so powerful is because we can all relate. Deep down, we can all relate, can't we? Because the cry of this dying sinner is the cry of us all. 
We need someone who will look us in the eye and tell us how to find forgiveness because we are running out of time. But you might be wondering, is forgiveness even possible for someone like me? What about that thing that I did, that thing that nobody else knows about? What about the mess I've made of my entire life? What about that besetting sin that I keep going back to? What about my anger and my lust and my greed and my hypocrisy? What about my racism and my selfishness and my impatience and my pride? How can I even hope for forgiveness? Well, this brings us on to our final point this morning. We need a savior who can give us life. We need a savior who can give us life. Joseph did indeed forgive his brothers. Their guilt brought about their repentance and Joseph's love brought about reconciliation. But this is more than a sweet story of forgiveness. Look again at Joseph's words in chapter 45. So at the end of verse five there he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. Then in verse seven, he says, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. This is ultimately a story of salvation. The only way certain death could be avoided was if God sent someone, someone who had the ability to give life. And that's exactly what God did through Joseph. Of course, Joseph, provided food that really only delayed the inevitable. Death did eventually come to Joseph's family. However, and this is the important thing as far as the book of Genesis is concerned, the family line is preserved. The line of promise continues. The line that was once again threatened with the famine goes on. And that's really important because many years later, through this family line, God sent someone else. Someone who would preserve the lives of many. So in John 6, which Marty read earlier, Jesus told the people, do not work for the food that perishes, but, the food, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Which the son of man, he's talking about himself, which I will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then he tells them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. <laughs> do, you, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying food can only keep you alive for so long. You know, we could add other things to that list, couldn't we? Water, medicine, exercise, seatbelts, technology, Things like this might help us live longer, but they only delay the inevitable. Jesus offers us something better. He offers us eternal life. He offers us, he offers us himself. 
Jesus is the answer to the problem of this passage. We need forgiveness for our sin. Well, guess what? Jesus conquered our sin on the cross. He died taking the punishment that we deserve. Therefore, in Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God. And think about what this means. That guilt you carry around with you, that crushing weight that you feel because of your sin, that deep impulse that you have to run from God, to hide from God, that voice inside you that says, God could never forgive someone like you. Friend, allow me to look you in the eye and tell you how to find forgiveness. You can find it in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So come to Christ, receive Christ, believe in Christ, turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus. Let go of that guilt and rest in Christ. If you've never done that before, then let me urge you to do that today. And if you have already received Christ, then tighten your grip on him this morning. Cling to him. Bask in the warm sun rays of his love. Breathe in the fresh air of his grace. Rest in the comfort of his forgiveness. But that's not all, because Jesus can save us from certain death. And he can do that because Jesus has conquered death through his resurrection. Death couldn't hold him. The grave could not restrain him. And that's why Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. No one, sorry, whoever believes in me, that's a different verse, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus and Jesus alone can save us from death. Again, think about what this means. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to live in denial of death, distracting ourselves, living as though we're immortal. We don't have to try and overcome death through our own efforts, just you know, placing all of our hope on science and technology and health and fitness. Jesus has conquered death for us. As John Owen famously put it, we see the death of death in the death of Christ. We see the death of death in the death of Christ. So we can face death, our greatest enemy, knowing that the victory is already ours in Christ. Death was once my great opponents. Fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we can be free indeed. I mean, is there any better news than this? Let me finish with a poem from John Owen. Uh, John Owen. John Dunn. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor yet canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Let's pray. What is our only comfort in life and death? That we are not our own, 
but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending a Savior to save us from sin and death. Jesus, we praise you that you conquered sin and death for us. Holy Spirit, help us to turn from our sin and cling to the Lord Jesus, putting all of our hope in him for both life and death. We ask all these things in the name of our Savior. Amen.